Entrepreneurs Over 40, Episode 27, with Dana Knowles talking about how she overcame her addictions to drugs and alcohol, invented the shower caddy, and became the Director of Inventor Relations at InventRight. What I realized is the mind doesn't know the difference between what we tell it and what's real. The mind doesn't know. The mind only knows what we feed it. Earl Nightingale, one of the best inspirational speakers ever, says the mind is like the earth. It will grow whatever you plant. So I started feeding my brain all this good stuff. And now I'm hanging around with good people. I'm not doing bad things. I'm not having the guilt and the shame of all that stuff I'm doing. And eventually, good things just started to happen. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Our guest today is an accomplished inventor and motivational speaker that holds nothing back. She's the owner of Dana Succedo, director of inventor relations at InventRight, a recovering drug addict and alcoholic, and the inventor of the shower caddy. She is a passionate advocate for women wanting to get sober and begin to be productive members of society. She is also a role model for women who wish to recreate themselves to do what they really want to do, no matter what. Without further ado, Dana Knowles. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me on here. I'm really excited to talk to you and talk to your viewers and enlighten them, inspire them to do what they've always wanted to do, no matter what. Yeah, thank you for being on here. My pleasure to have you. So can you take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro, Dana, and bring us up to speed with what's going on in your world today? Sure. Well, let's just start by saying from the time I was about 15 to the time I was 34, every night was a Friday night. <laughs> I didn't have weekends. I, I partied. And at some point, you know, maybe in my early 20s, I just overshot the mark and drugs and alcohol and living on the really seedy end of the railroad tracks. And I just couldn't get back on the other side of the tracks. For those 20 years, it was kind of a big blur. I have spotty, hazy recollections of what happened during those 20 years or so. But in 1997, I hit my bottom and I checked myself into a drug and alcohol treatment center for three weeks. And decided at that point that I really needed to change some things in my life. And I first started by hanging around with sober people who were shakers and movers and going places. And I just followed in their path. And all those years that I was drowning myself in alcohol and drugs, I would come up with all these ideas. And I, I was a big dreamer. I always wanted to do things. I always wanted to be a motivational speaker because I like to talk a lot. And I was an inventor. I was always a creator and a dreamer. And I had decided a few years after I got sober and I had a good foothold on living a sober life that I was going to go towards those dreams. And so I've become now a professional inspirational speaker as well as a successful inventor. Can we talk a little bit about your backstory and what got you to where you were when you hit rock bottom and then how you recognized it and how you went, propelled yourself forward? 
Well, I think like anybody, when I was a little girl and they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I didn't say, oh, I want to be a drug addict and an alcoholic and I want to destroy my life and I want to destroy everybody else's life and I'm going to bring a child into the world and I'm going to drag him through the muck, you know, having a child in tow through this insane lifestyle. I didn't want to do that. That wasn't my goal, but it started out gradual, you know partying on the weekends a little bit, and then hump day, and then ladies night. Before I knew it, the drugs started to play a part of my life, and then hanging around with the people that dealt the drugs and did the drugs. I know enough because I work enough with people who are uh, in recovery or struggling with addiction that it spirals out of control. And then one day, if we're lucky enough we wake up and it's like, how did I get here? There was times in my life that I thought I should be locked up, that I was crazy because I knew that I shouldn't be doing what I was doing. I at one time thought I should be locked up. I need to be locked up somewhere where I'm safe, where I can't get to any drugs or alcohol. And then I would have these brief moments of sobriety a day, not like weeks or months, but a day. It's like, oh, okay, I'm good. And my problem was that I was what they call a high bottom drunk, where I had a house, I had a car, I had a job, I owned my own business until I didn't. Then when I hit my rock bottom, I still had a home and I still have a vehicle. But when I got sober and I went into treatment, it wasn't a very safe place for me to go back home to. So I ended up becoming homeless after I got sober. Technically, when you live in a woman's shelter, you're considered to be homeless. And then I lived on what they call couch surfed meaning I didn't have anywhere to go. So I just would sleep on people's couches wherever I could land. And then eventually got a couple bucks in my pocket and got my own apartment and then just kept going forward from there to try to reinvent myself and recreate my life as a sober woman. I was in my mid thirties at that point, but I didn't see it coming. I didn't and I was one of those, I was one of those drunks, addicts, whatever you want to call. I don't know. I was a garbage head. I did it all. It doesn't matter. I call myself a garbage head because I did everything. I would not quite hit the bottom, but I would just skim the bottom. Like I would get to that point where I went so low and then I would work a little bit, get a couple dollars in my pocket, you know, pay the electric bill, get some insurance on the car, get some food in the groceries, go get a haircut. And I think, okay, I got it going on. I'm good. I'm good. And then I would just spiral that again. And it was like this roller coaster up and down and up and down. And I probably did that for the last 10 years of my drinking. I didn't get arrested. I didn't get DUIs. I didn't lose jobs. I didn't have my child taken away from me. I was dying inside that the guilt, the shame, the remorse was killing me. And I don't know why I had my moment. On December 3rd, I had started drinking about noon because now I'm physically addicted to alcohol, physically. Like I need it in my body because I'm going into DTs in the morning if I don't have it. And for some reason on December 3rd, I didn't have any alcohol. By noon, I was. I felt like I was dying. I was shaking. I was sweating. It looked like I had a terrible flu. And I knew the only thing that would save that is to go get a drink. And so I stopped at the local bar and I remember putting the whiskey. I was a whiskey drinker, putting the whiskey to my mouth 
and I went into an instant blackout. I had done this many, many times. And a blackout is when you're functioning, I'm walking around, I'm functioning, I'm doing everything, but I have no recollection of it. And for the next 18 hours, I was in this blackout. And when I came out of my blackout, I was in a strange house in a strange town. I didn't know who the people were in the house. And that's when I had my moment that there was no major consequences. I wasn't going to jail or losing my job or any of that. But I was so sickened inside that I screamed out to God, help me, the good old alcoholic prayer, help me. And that day I found myself in, I called a treatment center that was near me. All I said was, I need help. I I drove up there and it was pretty rough. The first three days were pretty rough. In fact, I remember waking up the next day and saying, oh, shoot, what did I do? Oh, my gosh, now I'm in treatment. What do I do? And, And I just made a decision to stay there. I learned about the disease of alcoholism and addiction. And I realized that I wasn't crazy thank God I I wasn't crazy. I was just an alcoholic and a drug addict. And I don't say that lightly, but I I was able to look at it that way. And there was help through 12-step meetings and through therapy. So that's kind of my story. My story is really very colorful. And if anybody wants to know the real story, that's a whole new podcast. I don't regret anything that I did. I take what I did. I embrace it, all the good, the bad, and the ugly. And now I hope that I can inspire other people to not shut the door on their past, but bring it out into the light and help other people. So as I'm sharing here, I certainly hope that I'm helping someone that's listening, even that one person that's listening, if they're struggling with drugs and alcohol to reach out and get help. And we can be anything we want to be. How long did it take you once you made that initial decision to get to you know, where you would consider yourself functioning normally oh. <laughs> and, and normally in my world is there's a whole wide range <laughs> i have a bumper sticker that says masquerading around as a normal person day after day is exhausting yeah physically i had to be detoxed from all the junk i was putting in my body that's going to take weeks probably or even months to really physically get all of that out of my body but it was the mental part of my recovery that I really had to work on. So first, my main concern was don't drink. Don't do drugs. Don't drink. I mean, that's all. that was my goal every day. Don't drink and don't do drugs. That was my goal. And stay away from the people that are doing that kind of behavior. I started hanging around with other clean and sober people. It was maybe about two years before I finally really I had a lot of damage. There was a lot of stuff that I had to fix. There was court stuff. There was a divorce going on. There was homelessness. There was getting a car on the vehicle, getting a job. It takes some time. Nothing in life happens overnight, I guess, maybe unless you hit the lottery, but nothing happens overnight. So I would probably say a couple years before I really said, okay, I got a good grasp on the sobriety thing. Not that I never forget. I still work very hard on my 12-step group that I go to and also helping other women who are trying to you know, get clean and sober and stay clean and sober. But uh, it was about two years before I felt like, okay, I'm ready to go to another level. I'm ready to follow my dream. I'm ready to get serious about that. How did your family react 
you know, when you started getting your act together? I'm originally from Pittsburgh, PA. And in, in the early 90s, I left Pittsburgh because, well, I thought it was Pittsburgh that was my problem because I lived in downtown Pittsburgh. And I thought it was Pittsburgh that was my problem. So I, I did the geographical change to cure me to Scranton, Pennsylvania. And that didn't cure me because, you know, everywhere we go, there we are. My family was still living all in Pittsburgh. The only people I knew in Scranton were people that were doing drugs, drinking, and then my husband's family lived there. They just weren't supportive at all. They didn't understand the disease of alcoholism. Over the last 20 years or 20-some years, the disease of alcoholism has really come into light, that it's not this big black cloud, this this walk of the shame that we carry around with us, because, al- because addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever... It touches just about everybody's life. And now it's really brought out into the open more. So my mother and my father, who are living back in Pittsburgh, they didn't even know I was in treatment. I kind of checked out of the family life. When we're living in the world of addiction, we don't get invited to weddings and baby showers and parties and family reunions and funerals because they don't want us around. I had many family members that had died that I didn't even know they died until I got sober Interestingly enough, when I was celebrating my one-year anniversary of being sober, my mother wrote me a letter, and she said, your father and I are just starting to begin to believe that you might be doing this, staying sober. That was the moment I realized how much damage I had done because the trust wasn't there. There was just so much heartache that I put my, especially my family through. My mother was sleepless nights, not knowing whether her daughter was alive or dead, not hearing from me for months on end, but they were supportive. And now my mother, you know, she can't even really recall. I've been sober for 24 years. I'm just a completely different person. I'm the daughter I've always should have been. I'm the sister I always should have been. So they're supportive of me for sure now, as well as my son, I had a child that I drugged through all that muck. Luckily, he did not become an alcoholic or a drug addict. It always amazes me that you can have two parents that are total off the chart, drug abusers and alcoholics, and, and, the, and the children don't turn out that way. Or you can have two parents like my parents that were wonderful parents that never drank and drugged ever. I mean, my parents were married for 40 some years. Dinner was on the table every day. We went camping. We had a pool in the backyard. We had a, a, a dog. And yet I turned out the way I turned out. So I don't know. Sometimes I think you just get what you get. You try your best. You just get what you get. Now you alluded to starting to hang out with more successful people. How did you come by those people? The first thing that most treatment centers will do is they will introduce you to a 12 step program. And it's vitally important for me. And I don't know about anybody else. I can only speak for myself that I started hanging around with good, sober people. That saying, birds of a feather flock together. And I wanted to be the sober, respectable woman that I saw others being. And I just started to hang around with them, whether that was going out for coffee, talking with them on the phone, going to the meetings together and connected with them We'll segue into that at some point with the inventing or the speaking is hanging around with those people who are where I want to be. Did you come from an entrepreneurial or inventor's background at all? 
Was there anybody in your family that had invented or had their own business? Not invented, but my mother was an entrepreneur. She owned her own successful drapery, custom drapery uh, business. My father and her owned it together. I've always worked for myself. I've had other jobs, you know, waitressing and some other jobs when I was younger, but I've always worked for myself. I had a cleaning business for many, many years that I cleaned some of the wealthiest people in the Scranton area. I had a secondhand clothing store for many, many years for women where I would help women in the battered women's shelter. That's, of course, after I got sober. And then now I own Dana's Tuxedo, that we are the only tuxedo business in three counties here in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. And I've had that since 2008. How did you get started in the tuxedo business? Because that that seems like that would take a little bit of know-how and maybe a lot of capital. No, it was pretty interesting. So going back to getting sober, I was in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and there was a business up there that was a huge wholesale tuxedo place. They supplied tuxedos to 500, 600 stores in the Northeast United States. And I happened to be working for them cleaning because I had my own cleaning business, but I'm drinking. So I'm cleaning and drinking and cleaning and drinking. And I used to put my alcohol in the 409 bottles are white, so you can't see through them. And I'd rinse that out real good. And then I would pour my whiskey in the 409 bottle. So I would be at work drinking out of a 409 bottle. And I don't know if anybody saw me or not. So I worked for this company and then I went to rehab. (laughs) And while I was living in the woman's shelter, the owner of this company somehow got a message to me and said, tell Dana to come back. I want to talk to her. And I I felt like I was going to the principal's office, like, oh, I'm being big trouble now. I went to rehab. I just didn't show up for work. So I thought for sure I was going to be in trouble. And he sat me down and he said, what can I do to help you? He had had a friend of his that died of alcoholism. And he said, I don't want to see that. What can I do for you? Can I give you your job back? So he gave me my job back. And that was like, and I was probably six weeks sober at the time. And that was my first little um, glimpse of hope that there are people that do want to help. And so then I fast forward it. I I met my husband. We got married. We moved around the country. We moved around the world a little bit. And then I landed in Martinsburg, West Virginia. And then I started a secondhand clothing store. And then in 2007, there was two tuxedo places in Martinsburg, West Virginia. They went out of business. They closed their doors at the same time for health reasons, not for lack of not having the business. Both of them within six months of each other. And my husband says, why don't you call Mark Sarno? That's the owner of Sarno and Sons. And I said, oh, okay. So I called Mark. I'm like, hey, Mark, it's Dana. You know, there's nobody doing tuxedos down here in Martinsburg, West Virginia, which is like three and a half hours from Scranton. And he said, hold on a second. I don't know what he did. Maybe he looked at the population or how far away it was. And he just said, when do you want to start? And I said, okay, tomorrow. And, And so the next thing I knew, I had catalogs. I started the business with one catalog. I started it with a swatch book and one mannequin. And I was doing it in the back of my secondhand clothing store for about a year. And then the business took off. And then I opened up another store. Now, the secondhand clothing store, we don't have that anymore because I was burning the candle at both ends, running two businesses. So we actually gifted the secondhand clothing store to the local Humane Society so they can have it for a thrift store for their spay and neuter clinic. 
So then I walked away from the secondhand store and now I just do the tuxedo business. I never learned how to be an entrepreneur. I never learned. I didn't go to school for it. I don't have any big letters behind my name. I didn't write a book. I don't have any of that stuff. What I do have is common sense. Common sense is not so common. I know. And starting a business is common sense to me, but it comes so natural to me. I, I love having my own business. I love it. I don't like the days when I have to play whack-a-mole. <laughs> the other day I came in and the toilet wasn't working. So I've got my hands in the toilet tank, you know, or a light bulb burns out or, or the computer doesn't work. I think, and that helps with being an inventor. We just figure out a better way. Like, okay, this isn't working. Let's just figure it out. When you own your own business, you don't have anybody to ask because I don't have a boss. I don't have anybody to go to. How did the shower caddy come about? Oh, this is a good story. So in 1997, when I first got sober, thought to myself, I'm going to do something serious. Well, probably 1998, probably a year or so later. I'm going to do something with one of my inventions. And I was cleaning houses because I got some of my jobs back. And I came up with an idea. And I ran off to one of those invention submission companies. I won't name which one, but I ran off to one of them. They wanted some money and I scrounged up some money and I gave them some money and I got a really nice book with a bunch of pictures in it. And then they wanted thousands of dollars and I just didn't have it. I can look back in hindsight and say, thank goodness that I was poor. I didn't have it. I didn't know what to do. So I kind of shelved it for a little bit. And then a couple of years later, I came up with another idea and I ran off to a patent attorney and I flopped the prototype because I'm real good at creating stuff. I flopped the prototype in front of the, the patent attorney and said, I'd like to patent this. And he said, okay. And $6,000 later, I had nothing. I went to a big show in New York City that made a bunch of promises. So it's another five, $6,000. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to start my own business. I can do this. I got a machine to make something. I got packaging. I got labels. I got website. I got the whole nine yards. I just couldn't get any traction. Uh, I was showing the product to companies, but I didn't know what I was doing. I, I was trying to sell it myself. I'm an idea person. I've coined the phrase, I'm a pet peeve specialist. <laughs> so if nobody has it out there, it's official. It's mine. I'm taking it. <laughs> so I put a little TM on there, pet peeve specialist. So I... I was trying to do all these things to try to get one of my ideas out there, but I just didn't know what I was doing. I had joined the inventors network of the capital area in Washington, D.C., because I'm in Martinsburg. So I'm about an hour from D.C. So I joined this inventors group and I would go every month. I volunteered to be the treasurer for the group because I knew that would get me there because I had a commitment. We would have speakers come on every month and talk about all kinds of aspects of inventing, patenting, you know, everything. But I never heard about what I'm going to talk about, which is blows my mind. So in 2016, I became the president and the president's job is to find the speakers. So in 2009, I had went to an event at the USPTO and I heard this guy speak. His name was Stephen Key. And I didn't know who Stephen Key was. But a few years later, Facebook's coming up. So I connect with Stephen Key and I'm following him and reading his posts. And he was becoming a pretty big guy. 
in the inventing world. And I thought, I'm going to reach out to Stephen Key and ask him if he'll come and speak at our event next time he's in the D.C. area because he's from the West Coast. So he said, yeah, I'm going to be there in in 2017. He's coming in springtime. I had found out he wrote a book called One Simple Idea. And I thought, well, if I'm bringing him in to speak, maybe I should read his book. That's the only reason I read it is because I wanted to maybe impress him. If we had a conversation, I'd be able to quote some things in the book so that he knows that I read it. It blew my mind. It's all about taking one simple idea and going through the licensing process. So I I downloaded it on Audible. I listened to it once. I listened to it twice. I listened to it three times. I'm like, where has this been all my life? I've been trying to go down every road possible with, with no end in sight. Now there's this thing called licensing, which is basically we come up with the idea. We show it to potential brands or manufacturers, brands. Then if they like the idea, they take the idea, they run with it. They produce it, they package it, they ship it, they warehouse it, they show it to buyers, they get it into all their existing platforms for retail, online, brick and mortar, catalog. And then they pay us, me, the inventor, a royalty. So that's what I decided that I was going to learn how to do. Now I've become an expert at it. I actually work for the company that taught me how to do it, InventRight. I'm their director of inventor relations. I'm also an advisor for them. Also running Dana's Tuxedo. Also coming up with other inventors. Also helping people in the recovery world. I got a full plate here. Yeah, when do you sleep? (laughs) I do. I do make sure I sleep. Eating healthy and sleeping is probably one of the most important things that I do. But I'm like a ball of fire. When my feet hit the ground in the morning, I'm running like crazy. And then by nine o'clock at night, I'm done. So I took an idea. I went through Stephen Key's course, the Come Event Right. They have a coaching program. So I signed up to be a student to learn everything I could about licensing. And I took my product. It's called the Hanging Shower Caddy. It's very long and narrow. I licensed it to a company, Grand Fusion. We just hit 400 five-star reviews on Amazon, but it's selling on many different platforms. It went on the market just before COVID hit. So it's not in any brick and mortar stores now, but they're looking at 2022. We really think it's going to be in a lot of brick and mortar stores. Okay. Now, how long has that been out? Two years. See, that blows my mind. I I feel like that's been out longer or, or ha- yeah. should have been out longer. The thing about licensing is, and I'll use my shower caddy for an example. There is a lot of mesh shower caddies out there. What makes mine unique and different is the shape of it is different. And that made it appealing because there was nothing like it on the market, nothing that was shaped very long and narrow. And that made it very appealing to a potential licensee. But with that being said, it's not like I called one company and they said, oh, yeah, sure. We love it. No, I called 80 companies. 20, some of them never even got back to me. Three of those 52 actually looked at the prototype and then said, we like it, but no, it's not a good fit for us right now. And company 53 said yes. And you only need one. Mm -hmm. You only need one. It's, it's a numbers game, like so many things, whether you're in sales, whether you're in public speaking, it's a numbers game. The more stuff you throw on the wall, it's going to stick somewhere. 
And yep. it's about relationships and getting to know people and suiting up and showing up and being professional. I always, I feel weird asking this, but I'll, I'm going to ask it and you feel free to tell me, uh, pass or we'll go on to the next question, but what kind of percentage do you get on that? I can talk about that. So royalty rates on a simple product like mine, it's retailing for 10.99. Is the the average royalty rate on a simple product like this is 5%. So if a product retails for $10, it's probably going to wholesale for $5. So I get 5% of $5, which isn't much. 25 cents, right? Right. Not much. This particular product here is on target to sell between 200 and 250,000 units a year. Nice. Yeah. So when you add those numbers up, that's a nice chunk of money. And, And the thing is, I'm not doing any work. I'm done. I did my work on the back end. Now, the company put all their time, all their money, all their effort into getting my product on the market. The only thing that I do is get on podcasts like this and talk about it. I also share on my LinkedIn page, my Facebook page, like we just hit 400 five-star reviews. I will be posting something, a video of me doing some kind of happy dance or whatever, because that drives sales to Amazon or to their website or wherever. I feel like some people would expect it to to have a higher margin, but they're not thinking it through. The royalty rate can be anywhere from 2% to 12%. 2% would be on a very inexpensive item that they're going to sell millions of them. They're going to sell millions. So you might only do a 2% because you're going to make the money because you're doing so much volume. A larger royalty rate would be on something that's more expensive, but doesn't sell a lot. Maybe something that costs $1,000 or $5,000 or something. You're not going to sell a million units of that a year. Okay. Now, how did you become you know, a director of inventor relations with InventRight? Well, remember I talked about getting sober and hanging around with people who were where I wanted to be? Mm-hmm. Well, the team at InventRight was where I wanted to be. They were successfully licensing products. They were teaching other people how to license products. So after my six months of being a student in InventRight, I really just never went anywhere. I became an alumni student. So I showed up at everything. I just showed up. When there was a trade show in Chicago, I showed up. I just kept showing up. I can't talk about the shower caddy without talking about the program that taught me how to license my shower caddy because that's so important. So over the years, I guess Stephen just got sick of looking in my face and said, hey, why don't you just come work for us? I remember when I first started pitching my product, I was so scared to pick up the phone and talk to people like many people are. And I kept doing everything else other than pick up the phone and actually talk to somebody. And I got really mad at myself. And I thought, what am I scared of? What's the worst that can happen? I had these visions of myself sitting on my rocking chair on my front porch when I was 90 years old, if I'm so blessed to live that long, saying, I wish I would have made those phone calls. And I got mad. It was like that anger that fueled me to put something into action because nothing happens without some kind of action. There's certain times that we need to pause and don't do anything. And I do a whole talk on the pause. But I also believe that in the industry of inventing, you have to do something. You, you have to reach out. You have to let people know your product's there. So I got really mad at myself. 
I had a list of companies and phone numbers and I just started dialing the numbers, dialing the numbers, dialing the numbers. And I kept on doing that until I wasn't scared to do it anymore. Because okay. everything we do when it's new is scary. Everything you do in this podcast probably was scary. You start oh, yeah. everything. We don't know because it's new. We don't know. But when we go through that fear and just say, okay, I'm going to just do this. And then we do it. Then it becomes very easy. So I got very good at making phone calls. So when InventRight started a new program, we call Bridging the Gap. It's where we bring companies on to live Zoom calls for our professional students. Somebody had to be the person to call companies. And that was me <laughs> because I got so good at phone calls. Because, see, I don't like emails only because I don't like waiting. Phone calls, you get answers right away. You get to that person right away. You leave a voicemail. So that's how I got to be director of inventor relations. It's funny because Stephen told me that my title would be inventor relations. And so after a couple of weeks of saying it, this is Dana Knowles, inventor relations with InventRight. And I thought, that doesn't sound good. I called Stephen. I'm like, I need to be the director of inventor relations. I need a name. I need a title because it just sounds more impressive, but it is impressive to be inventor relations for InventRight. Well, you talked about this a little bit too, of, about fear and how it's motivated you. And I noticed on your website that you had the phrase, fear is the thief of dreams. Mm. What does that mean to you and where'd you hear it? I, I have it on a coin somewhere. I don't even know where this coin came from, but I have it on a coin. I carry it with me all the time. I did a whole presentation on fear at the InventorCon 2021 that the Kentucky Inventors um, Group had. And it was all about fear. And it was all about getting down to the root of our fear and what we're really fearful of. When I'm calling companies and I say, I'm scared, I'm fearful of it. What I'm really scared of is what are they going to think of me? Am I going to sound stupid? Am I going to know what I'm talking about? It all really comes down to pride and ego. I want to sound smarter than I am, so I don't want to embarrass myself. So getting down to the root of what is like peeling off the onion, what is really going on with the fear that's deep down inside? We can say, I'm scared of calling. I'm scared of making phone calls. No, you call people all the time. We call our friends and family all the time and talk to them, right? Right? Mm -hmm. So there's a deeper underlying thing of what we're scared of. And when we stay in that fear of I'm scared to call people or I'm scared they won't like my product or I'm, I'm scared about being on this podcast or I'm scared to open up. So I'm fearful of starting my own business. What if I fail? What if I this? What if I that? You know, living in the what ifs. And it steals our dreams. Mm -hmm. It's the thief of dreams. Yeah. And I learned a long time ago, not when I was drinking, but after I got sober, how to dig deep inside myself and figure out what's really going on by stopping and just thinking, what, what's really going on? Or why am I so angry about something? Anger for me is always stems, if, if, when you pick it apart, when you start peeling off that onion, there's a fear underneath there. I'm fearful. I'm angry because I'm scared I'm going to get something I don't want. I'm scared I'm going to lose something I have. I'm scared you're going to think bad of me. You know, and, and I've just learned over the years with practice, practice, practice to not allow fear. And I still have it. It's a natural you know, fear, two forms. One, the fear of putting your hand on a hot stove. Yeah. Valid. And two is, two is the inner fear. And I have to sit down and say, okay, is this imagined 
or is this real? Because most of it's the stuff that stops us from following our dreams is imagined. Mm -hmm. That's where that comes from. I get fearful. I wasn't fearful talking on this. I've done these so many times. I used to be fearful that I'm going to mess up my words or I'm going to have a coughing spell or I'm not going to look perfect. And I just realized most people just want to see the average everyday person share their experience in hopes that they are inspired to do something, even if it's just to stop and look in deep inside and say, okay, why aren't I doing the things that I dream about doing of every day? I've done everything. Well, maybe not everything. I have a really weird bucket list, but we don't need to talk about that. I've lived in Barbados. I lived in Ireland. I have a really good life. I'm financially okay. I sleep at night. I'm peaceful. I'm following my dreams. I I've done everything that I want. I started my own business. I've invented something. It went on the market. That was a dream of mine. And I don't know what's better, getting the mailbox money and the royalty check or seeing the the five-star reviews on Amazon. I can't wait until the day I actually see my product in a retail store. Oh yeah, that's going to be crazy. But now my goal is to become a successful inspirational speaker. I've always wanted to be a speaker I've spoke many times in front of many audiences. Usually it's recovery oriented. My favorite class in school was speech, speaking class. I've, I was in school plays. And so that's my next dream is to be in front of a stage with 10 people or a thousand people because you never quite know what you're going to get. <laughs> and you've already done some of that. Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, right? Yeah, I have. I have. Now I have a speaking coach who is guiding me through, just like somebody guided me through the inventing process. If I was to do it on my own, I am going to waste so much time and so much money Mm -hmm. not knowing what the heck I'm doing. So just like with inventing, I hired a professional, the InventRight team to coach me. And I did the same with my speaking career. I hired a coach it's a company. It's called the Speaker Lab. And I went through their process that we built a website. We got speaker reels. We got our hit list of companies. We want to get into that key player for event planning. Who's picking the speakers? So now I'm in the process of doing the podcast like these to get some good speaker reel footage, as well as contacting event planners that will hopefully want to hear the message that I have. I primarily speak with people who have dreams, people who are stuck. You know, they're not happy. Not that they're not happy with their life. We have that that annoying voice in the back of our head that never goes away. I want to open up a business or I want to do something I want to bring a product to market. And then that annoying voice is, I want to start my own speaking business. I don't know what the next annoying voice will be, but I got sick of listening to it. And it's like, okay, I'll write already. I'll do something about it. And even the mere fact that I said to myself, I'll do something about it, that annoying voice stopped. Because now that voice is saying, you go, girl, you go, you do it. You got this. Yeah, there's a song that you reminded me of. I think it's by Zach Brown. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. It's called Fear, He is a Liar. Oh, and I have to check in, that out. Yeah, it says something to the effect of you think you're not beautiful, you think you're not worthy. Fear, he is a liar. 
Yeah. And I'm a big believer in self-talk. When I was first sober, I went to therapy. (laughs) My therapist had said, you beat yourself up so much because I had all this guilt and shame. You know, I was a terrible mother. I was a terrible daughter. I was a terrible person. Terrible, terrible, terrible. So she had me, she gave me a piece of paper and it had all these little one line positive affirmations. She says, cut these out and put these all over your house, bathroom mirror, beside your bed, your front door, your everywhere. You are beautiful. You are smart. You know, you are successful. You can be somebody. And I had them plastered all over the place. And what I realized is the mind doesn't know the difference between what we tell it and what's real. The mind doesn't know. The mind only knows what we feed it. Earl Nightingale, one of the best inspirational speakers ever, says the mind is like the earth. It will grow whatever you plant. If you plant poison ivy over here and corn over here, it will grow just as abundantly. He says that's how our brains are, and I get that. So I started feeding my brain all this good stuff. And now I'm hanging around with good people. I'm not hanging around with a bunch of people that are doing not what they're supposed to be doing. I'm not doing bad things. I'm not having the guilt and the shame of all that stuff I'm doing. And I'm feeding my mind this good stuff. And eventually, good things just started to happen. Life gets messy sometimes. I'm a big believer in gratitude. I'm always saying, what am I grateful for? I'm always grateful for what I have because I've been homeless. I've had nothing. I've had no money in my pocket. In fact, when I went into the woman's shelter after rehab, I didn't have any clothes. I had no money. I was digging out of boxes in the women's shelter for clothes, going to food banks for food. I had nothing. And so today, I'm so grateful that I went down to nothing because what I realized is what we really need is we need food, we need clothing, and we need shelter. Everything else in this world is icing on the cake. Yeah. And because I have that attitude and because I believe that truly – that I keep getting blessed, but I have to work at it. It's just not like I'm going to sit back on my duff and people are going to come knocking on my door saying, Dana, I hear you're the best inspirational speaker ever. And we want you to come speak at our event in front of 20,000 people. And we're going to pay you an astronomical amount of money. That's not going to happen. I have to go out there and network and hang around with the people who are doing what I want to do and be where I want to be. Okay. Now, do you have a book in you? Because I'm, Kind of surprised that I didn't find one on Amazon. Funny you should say that. I did start to write a book a few years ago, and I'm not a writer at all, but I thought I'm just going to throw a bunch of stuff. I went to my friend's cabin up in the woods and spent three days by myself just pounding out, just blah, blah, you know, spewing words. Got a kind of a rough draft. And then, you know, things get busy and I shelved it. It's in a box somewhere in the basement since COVID, really. And I've been doing a lot of these podcasts. I've had writers reach out to me mm-hmm. and say, you got a great story and you need to talk about it. My problem is I don't know what ghostwriter is good or bad. Who do you right. trust? Who's going to be able to take what's up here in my head and put it on those words without putting their spin on it. So that's kind of where I'm stuck right now. Like I'd love to write a book, but I'm not a writer. I'm a talker. So if I could talk to somebody and they can put it all in words, that'd be cool. I don't know how all that works. So I'm I'm sure there's a book in the future for me, for sure. So if anybody's out there and they can guide me towards somebody, please hit me up on LinkedIn, Dana Knowles. I would like to write a book. 
I would like to have my thoughts out there and my experience and to help other people. Okay. And the interesting thing is that I don't think my story is that special. It's my life. It's what I lived. I kind of cringe sometimes when people say, oh, you're doing so well. Good for you. You're sober. And it's like, hey, you don't get a gold star for totally screwing up your life. Maybe a gold star for accomplishing things afterwards. But I don't want to pat on the back because I was a complete screw up for 20 years and lived in a bottle of whiskey and a gram of cocaine. Let's get ready to wrap this up. Is there anything I I haven't asked that you'd like to go over? You know what? I think, I think you, I think your questions that ask brought out a lot of information. I wanted to talk about my past. I wanted to talk about inventing. I wanted to talk about speaking. I wanted to talk about what I do in my life today to keep me on the right path. So I think we covered it all. Did a great job. Well, thank you. Good deal. I won't say what book do you recommend to to help them in their life or to move their business to the next level, but is there a speaker or a video or, you know, YouTube video that you recommend? This is the second time I'm listening to this book. So I'm going to give him a little shout out. John Acuff, J-O-N-A-C-U-F-F, Soundtracks. He's a great narrator. He's just talking to you like you're sitting there. He's very animated. It's super interesting for somebody like me anyway. And it's funny as well. And it made me really think about the soundtracks that I play over and over in my head. One of the things that I love about it is a lot of what he says, I've worked on that soundtrack That voice in my head, fear is a thief of all dreams, what's the inner fear, something that you've wanted to do all your life, but yet you don't do it because there's that inner voice inside of you, your soundtrack saying, oh, it's too hard. You can't do it. You're not smart enough. Well, let me tell you, I'm a high school dropout. I have no college degree. I don't have the letters behind my name. What I have is the passion and the drive and the want to follow my dream. And that's so much more important. Of course, If you are my accountant or you're my brain surgeon, I really want you to have some letters behind your name. But to be an entrepreneur, to do certain things, you really need to put that dream into action. So John Acuff, um, Soundtracks is the one I'm listening to right now. Every book I listen to is a book to make my brain better and make me move forward. I did mention Stephen Key's book, One Simple Idea. If anybody has an idea that they want to license, that's always a good book. What's the best way for someone to contact you or to check you out online? DanaKnowlesInspires.com is my website. And we didn't even say this. You didn't say this in my bio. I'm the first lady of Martinsburg, West Virginia. Oh, my that's husband, right. He was in recovery 24 years and he was also homeless at one time. His story is pretty, pretty amazing too, but he doesn't shout it like to the public like I do. He's not as vocal about it <laughs> in public. It sounds like you both come a long way. Yeah, we have. We've lived on both sides of the tracks. It wasn't just like we hit the lottery. It's been hard work over the past 24 years. But the one thing that we did, we never quit. We never quit. And of course, Dana Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S on LinkedIn is the best way to reach out to me if you want to message me or see what's going on in my life. Okay. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, Dana, for being a guest on Entrepreneurs Over 40. If you'd like to leave feedback on this episode or suggest a guest, you can reach me at eo40show at gmail.com. That's eo40show 
at gmail.com. Now, next week, we'll have on Chris Klesh talking about how he retired from AT&T and started his company, Lifetime Leisure Experiences, to help people maximize their travel experiences while minimizing the cost. Be sure to hit subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss it or any other episodes. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.